Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 145 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we welcome Suna Chayaptay. She's a postdoctoral research associate at St. Edmund's College, University of Cambridge and the author of The First Capital of the Ottoman Empire, The Religious, Architectural and Social History of Bursa, published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury. The book covers the many lives of Bursa, a city in the northwest of today's Turkey, examining its history from antiquity to the present day. In particular, the book focuses on the little-explored, hybrid and plural character of Bursa after it transitioned from Byzantine to Ottoman rule after it was conquered by Ottoman forces in 1326. But before we get started with the interview, let me just remind you that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History books published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. and indeed that includes the book that we're discussing in this very episode if it piques your interest. Turkey Book Talk members also receive transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published and you get transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with our conversation with Suna Chaptai. I started by asking her, what's her personal connection to Bursa? I mean, I don't have any personal connections with the city. My family is from the eastern part of Turkey. I was born and raised in Malatya. But when I started studying archaeology in my undergraduate years, I realized that I was interested in the idea of identity, how identity is formed and how it's reflected through the visual cultures. And I also realized that I was interested in later medieval periods. The Seljuks didn't really leave any impact on me. I didn't find them really attractive. So I didn't find them really interesting. And I decided to switch to a city that I didn't know much about. And it, it just took me to Bursa. And, you know, there I realized that this was the place where the early Ottomans were trying to identify themselves as a culture as well as as a settlement and and a living culture there. So I think this is how it started for me, uh, my adventure with the city. So we'll come to the Ottoman era uh, shortly. Just wonder if we could go back to the origins, really, of of Bursa. So -hmm. its foundation goes back to the 3rd century BC. Just briefly outline for us the character and role of the city in antiquity. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, it is uh, one of those cities that are that is founded in the Hellenistic period. Uh, the city has a mythical founder as well. Uh, his name is Prusias the first, and uh, there there's a little bit of discussion whether uh, it was actually Prusias the first who founded the city or Hannibal from Carthage. There is this debate, but you know, it's not our major concern here. We should know that the city was founded in the Hellenistic period in the third century BC. So when it was founded, we know that. Uh, it was a city that was pretty much rich in terms of its agricultural productivity as well as its water resources. This is something that we note, for example, in the in the writings of the Roman historians. For example, there was this governor who came to Bithynia in the second century BC. His name was Pliny the Younger, and he exchanges letters with the Roman emperor Trajan, talking about the temples, water infrastructure systems, and bathhouses in the city. And we get to understand that there was this really rich Roman infrastructure in the city. And then there is the local character by the name of Dio. He also talks about his uh, family history within the city. He talks about constructing a colonnade uh, within the city, which is a major urban intervention when you want to beautify your own city. So in a way, we see that he's trying to put Bursa next to the other important cities in Anatolia. And then when it when we come to the Byzantine period, we see that the idea of water resources become really important again. Most of the Byzantine emperors ruling in the from the 8th to the 11th centuries, they organized trips to Bithynia, to Bursa, on the way to Mount Olympus, where the monasteries were located. They would stop by the bathhouses within the city and they would come over there and benefit from the bathhouses. And then for the Byzantine period, the monastic presence was very important, especially in the iconoclastic period that took place in the 8th and the 9th centuries. We see the rise of monastic establishments founded on Mount Olympus. So the city is the hub of water and the monastic areas in the Byzantine period. And it was later conquered in 1326 and it became the Ottoman capital. And today yeah. it's often referred to as the first Ottoman capital. Talk about that aspect, Bursa's status as capital. What did that actually mean in practice? Was it a formal designation or was it a more sort of informal thing at that stage? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, when we think about the capital cities in our modern understanding, we often see those capitals as the place where the rulership functioned and lived and they did their courtly duties. In the case of the early Ottomans, especially in the aftermath of the 1326, yes, Bursa was their first capital city. They had their palace and administration offices there. But in that era, the Ottoman sultans were pretty much itinerant. They were going from one place to another. And if you remember the early Ottoman history, soon after the conquest of Prusa in 1326, they go and conquer the city of Nicaea or Iznik in 1331. And then Izmit or Nicomedia was conquered by the Ottomans in 1337. So they were pretty much busy with organizing campaigns and conquering much of Bithynia, as well as the neighboring regions like Mysia and Thrace. Mysia is, by the way, the area of Chanakkale and Balik 
Kesser and Thrace is well known to all of us. So this was their center. And there's also a little bit debate about whether Bursa was the first Ottoman capital, because, you know, the Ottomans emerge in, in this part of Anatolia, in northwestern part of Anatolia, as early as the 1300s or like 1290s. Prior to Bursa, they control some parts of Bithynia and Phrygia, places like Söyüt and Karajahisar. And those places, if you follow the Ottoman accounts that are written in the 16th century, those places were also sort of rendered as the places of power where the Ottomans, you know, laid their earliest foundations. But with the reign of Orhan, with the conquest of Bursa, the Ottomans still trying to conquer much of Bithynia as well as the neighboring regions. But this is also the place that they decided to settle down a little and in a way, you know, try to find a settled ground for themselves to conduct their imperial and also political ideals. And a few, dec- a few decades after Bursa was conquered, Edirne or Adrianople yeah. mm-hmm. took over as capital. Very briefly, why did the uh, Ottomans make that change? Yes, Edirne was conquered in probably around 1360s, 62 perhaps. It doesn't really become the second Ottoman capital as soon as it was conquered. We cannot see uh, the transition from uh, Bursa to Edirne being a very sharp one. It was very transitional and slow. It took them a while to decide or to shift the full imperial power from Bursa to Edirne. And also, for example, during the reign of Murat II, who ruled in the mid-15th century, we see that, you know, this was the time when both of the cities were functioning as capitals. Edirne was sort of the frontier capital of the Ottomans. Remember, Istanbul was conquered or Constantinople was conquered in 1453. So Edirne was the frontier capital. But Bursa seems like an ancestral or eternal capital at that time. We see both of them fulfilling different functions. Now, going back to the period when Bursa was conquered by the Ottomans, could you just talk about who lived there at the time? What was the uh, demographic picture of the city and its surroundings at the time of the conquest? And how did it change over time? There are a couple of, you know, if we use the travelers or, again, historical accounts, we come to an understanding of the Greek Orthodox population in the city. And then there is also a little bit of discussion of whether there were any Jews uh, prior to the expulsion of Jews from the Iberian Peninsula in Bursa. And I think uh, studies that are done by Heath Lowry as well as others, it just helps us to see that uh, prior to the expulsion of Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, there were Romani or Jews in, in Bursa. For example, a traveler from Bavaria, his name is Schildberger, and he visits the city towards the end of the 14th century, around 1397. And he says, for example, there are eight soup kitchens and Christians, Jews, and the infidels can get their food from those places. You know, this is just an indication that those soup kitchens function irrespective of religion or religious denominations. It also speaks for the presence of, of Jews. Uh, prior to the expulsion of the Jews from Iberia. There are also, for example, there's the case of Palamas, the Archbishop of Thessaloniki, who was a captive in the Ottoman court in the middle of the 14th century. He talks about the Greeks in Nicaea as well as in Bursa, but he, he also has this very sad tone. He says they decide to convert from Christianity into Islam. They are bilingual, you know, they can speak both languages, but they are siding with the other side. 
this is again the you know detail for the existence of the Greeks. One last detail, for example, in the accounts or the archival documents of the Patriarchate, we know that there was a representative sent from Constantinople in the 1380s to Bursa to collect the taxes from the Greek Orthodox population. So there are all sorts of different anecdotes that are helping us to locate the Greeks as well as the Jews uh, within the story. Also in the 15th century, there are travelers talking about the Armenians within the city and also starting from the mid-15th century onward. Most of the travelers talk about the presence of Latin commercemen, Genoese, uh, Venetian, and Florentine. So the city becomes very lively in terms of its ethnic and religious background, like a community with different ethnic and religious backgrounds. And the Ottoman conquest of Bursa was led by Orhan Ghazi. You mentioned him a bit before. He was the uh, son of Osman, the founder of the Ottoman dynasty. What do we know about Orhan? Well, um, for us, you know, uh, when we study the Ottomans, uh, we see Osman as this really eponymous founder. And to me, he seems almost like a very mythical figure, just like the Hellenistic founders of the ancient cities. But for the case of Orhan, we have more evidence, more written descriptions or accounts on him. He is an interesting figure. He is the one who conquers Bursa. He is the one who is in charge of most of the urban transportation transformations that are taking place in the old city. For example, he converts the Byzantine monastery in the city and uh, one part of this monastic complex, a baptistry from the complex, becomes the eternal resting place for his father, for Osman. And then when he dies, uh, he was also buried within the same complex. So his uh, period within the context of Bursa is important for the architectural conversions and reuse of the Byzantine urban fabric. But in the historical accounts, we see him as a figure who is in charge of both animosity with the Byzantines as well as alliance, alliances that he managed to conduct in the later periods. For example, he finds a way to make an alliance with John VI Cantacuzenos in the middle of the 14th century. And uh, this gives uh, him a chance to control his conquests in Bithynia as well as in Thrace. For example, he, he manages to go as far as Gallipoli or Gelibolu, and he conquers, for example, Gelibolu in 1354. So in a way, he, he becomes really advantageous with his alliances that he did with the Byzantines. And he also uh, manages to get a bride from Cantacuzenos as well. He uh, gets married to his uh, daughter, Theodora. And then there's also an interesting detail that I discuss in my book that Orhan, perhaps the first Ottoman sultan who practiced fratricide, a colleague and friend of mine, Asla Akushik, she discussed this within the context of the early Ottoman history and how Orhan's practice of killing his brothers just after his father's death in order to claim the throne was sort of overshadowed within the Ottoman history written by the chronicle, Ottoman chronicle. Chronicles. So he's a very curious figure. We get a different sense in the historical accounts, another sense um, in the Greek accounts about him. And then when we look at the, uh, the actual physical evidence in Bursa, he is the figure who converted much of the Byzantine fabric in the old city and gave them new functions and new meanings. Yes, I want to come on to that now because a sizable part of the book is taken up with giving details of a number of examples of architectural continuity from the Byzantine to the Ottoman eras. 
you start by focusing on the incorporation of classical or Byzantine buildings into the Ottoman fabric. So the conversion or repurposing essentially of these buildings. And also there was a significant continuation of architectural and construction practices between the Byzantine and Ottoman eras. And you describe that as a hybrid or synthetic style. So mm-hmm. just talk about that, this transition, this mixture of architectural traditions that was evident in the early Ottoman era particularly. I think the the term to look at this uh, hybrid style is the term Ottomanization. And when we look at the urban uh, transformations that the Ottomans were in charge of in the city of Bursa, we see that first they go and convert the classical or the Byzantine buildings. And in the case of the old city, they convert segments from the same monastic complex, the baptistry for Osman and the main church for, for Orhan. And then if we follow the words of of the, especially the English travelers who visited the city in the middle of the 17th century, we also note that he perhaps converted one part or a segment from the same complex, same monastic complex, to function as the Friday mosque. Again, if you follow the travelers' accounts, we come to an understanding that he converted the first grand mosque or the Ulujami from the remains of the earlier Byzantine structure. And in the second stage of the Ottomanization, we see the buildings that are built anew outside the city walls, especially. The Ottoman sultans move away from the old city. During the reign of Orhan, they go outside the city and they Orhan constructs the first complex within the outside the old city. And then Murat I, uh, Orhan's son, in the middle of the 14th century, he constructs his own complex towards the west of the city. And both of the major buildings the convent masjids that we see in the lower city of Orhan, as well as in Murat I's complex in Çekirge, towards the western part of the city. When we look at the building uh, construction techniques uh, on those buildings, we realize that they are carrying on the late Byzantine practice, which is alternating brick and stone, as well as the decorative details, such as the soft tooth patterns or corbel friezes and things like that, that we note in the late Byzantine architecture. So I think the Ottomans were really careful in terms of bringing in different manpower or manforce from the regions that they conquered. This was the time the Ottoman conquest in the Balkans was very much going on. So they just brought in different kinds of builders or builders with different experiences. And I think the continuity in the workshop practices, the continuity that we see from late Byzantine buildings or a building, you know, that's contemporaneous with the mosque or convent masjid of Orhan in Bursa, the Church, the Church of Panto Vasilisa. It just shows the continuity of the workshop practices and the role of the masons and builders in that continuity. And, you know, from an outside, when you look at those buildings, a late Byzantine building or an early Ottoman building might look identical in its construction techniques. And it just gives us really, uh, you know, interesting evidence about who the identity of the builders might be. That those builders who were working for a Byzantine building one day, they might just switch to an early Ottoman building the next day. Of course, it doesn't happen on a daily basis, but, you know, from one period to another, we can talk about builders, uh, you know, changing frontiers. Yeah. And so there was a continuity in style, but there was also, what about personnel? I mean, what was the level of um, Christian or Greek Orthodox participation on the ground in terms of uh, masons and builders in this early Ottoman era? I think, uh, you know, um, the architectural practices itself, they are really well-rooted within the local traditions. 
In the case of Bithynia, we don't get too many references speaking about the identity of the builders. There is one inscription, now lost inscription, from Gebze, talking about a builder by the name of Stephanos. And then there are also other references that are mentioned in the 16th century or 15th century Ottoman accounts talking about Greek builders working for the Ottoman sultans. Of course, we have to consider other ways of identifying the builders when we cannot find their names mentioned anywhere. And I think looking at looking at the architectural practices in, in this period would help us to see the identity of the builders. And of course, you know, the Ottomans did not only use the Byzantine or the Greek workers in the construction of their buildings. When we examine those buildings in detail, we see that they are also using Mamluk builders, perhaps coming from Syria or from the eastern part of Turkey. Around that time, you know, there were new principal and they were using local Syrian workshop practices in their buildings. So the early Ottoman buildings that we see in this period, in a way, combine not only local Bithynian characteristics, but also details from the Byzantine architecture in the Balkans, as well as the Mamluk architectural details. That's one of the reasons why I'm using the word uh, hybrid to identify this architectural style or technique. Now, I'd like to move the story forward a bit now, by uh, mm -hmm. a few centuries actually. Uh, it's not featured in the book, but what occurred in Bursa during uh, Turkey's War of Independence after the First World War? Was it uh, ever controlled by the Greeks? And were there many Greek Orthodox citizens still in Bursa by the early 20th century? What was the demographic profile in the early 20th century? Yeah, just to link up with what we were discussing in the previous question and the question of Greek identity in the late 19th, early 20th century. Recently, I was um, sent a photo by the Metropolitan Municipality of Bursa, and it was a tile with Greek inscriptions, Then there was a depiction of a double-headed eagle on it. The tile itself was found during a landscaping project in, in an area that's very close to the complex of Murat II, a complex that was built in the mid-15th century. So the tile had the double-headed eagle depiction, it had the date, 1818, and it also gave the names of, of a family. First names are Kuros, Lazarus, Savas, and Avram. And the last name is Prosikintos, and it identifies them as the builders or master builders. So uh, we are looking at a panel, perhaps coming from a building that was built in the early 19th century, then talking about a family of builders. So the names and the last names, everything is Greek. The banner is also very Greek, you know, one of the coat of arms in the medieval and early modern period, as well as, you know, in the 19th and 20th century, the double-headed eagle. So it's a very curious piece. And interestingly, another important detail for us to understand the presence of the Greeks in the city, again, comes from the area of the complex of Murat II in the city. Uh, we know that, you know, in the cadastral registers and so on, there were major districts in the city that was inhabited by the Greeks throughout its Ottoman history up until the early 20th century. For example, the neighborhoods uh, such as Kayabashi, Demirkapu, um, as well as Balıkpazarı, these were all the major locations within the city. And each of those neighborhoods had major Greek churches that are built in the early 19th century or remodeled in the early 19th century. 19th century. For example, there's the Church of Holy Apostles, there's the Church of Taxiarchis, as well as the Church of Archangels and uh, Church of St. John the Theologian. 
But when we come to the early 20th century, the history of the Greek Orthodox community in the city becomes really contested. During the Greco-Turkish War or the Turkish Independence War, the convent masjid within the Murat II's complex was occupied by the Greek forces from 1920 to 1922. And, uh, for example, during the restorations that took place in 2012, the restoration architects found uh, stencils of Greek flags on the walls of the convent masjid. And, uh, you know, when they tried to identify, they came to an understanding, they spoke with the Greek scholars, and then they came to an understanding that this was the stencils of the Greek flags that are put there by the military forces who occupied the convent masjid of Murat II. And of course, you know, it was studied, photographed, recorded, and it was whitewashed again when the restorations were finished. And the city was free of the Greeks in terms of the political changes by 1922, with the exchange of the population uh, taking place in the same year. Most of the inhabitants, I should say all of the Greek Orthodox inhabitants of the city, moved from Bursa to Greece, establishing new settlements with the names such as Nea Mudania or Nea Trilia, you know, named after their hometowns in Bithynia, towns very close to Bursa. And the, you know, population was just moved from Bursa to Greece in 1922. And since then, there has been no presence of of a Greek population. But religiously speaking, the ecumenical patriarchate in Constantinople or in Istanbul has an office called the Metropolitan of Bursa, an office that's still active and going on. There's a representative within the ecumenical Greek Orthodox Church in Istanbul, as well as in the in the world and there was the metropolitan of bursa and the previous metropolitan of bursa is now actually functioning as the archbishop of the usa based in new york so while you know we cannot talk about the inhabitants themselves there is i think this identity or office that we can still talk about in terms of the greek orthodox presence in bursa i would say now, Bursa today, one of the monikers that it goes by is the, the name Green Bursa, Yeshir mm-hmm. Bursa. But it's a strange name, really, because the city has really become one of the victims of uh, this urban sprawl, industrialization, rather unplanned development and rapid urbanization that many cities in Turkey have experienced for decades. It's got a population of two and a half million, uh, I believe, today. Yeah. And it really is, it's almost impossible to imagine this old Bursa that you describe in the book. I wonder if you also reflected on that contrast between the present day and the almost unrecognizable era that you write about in the book. Yeah, the transformation itself, I think, in the in the city of Bursa is very sad. The urban sprawl that we see, and especially more recently in the early 2000s, uh, the government decided to uh, sponsor a series of housing complexes that are known as Toki in Turkey. And uh, there are several locations within the city that are uh, now uh, inhabited those huge, really tall blocks, cement blocks. It just obstructs every available good vista within the city. It just occupies a place within the heart of the old city as well. In a way, it changed a lot, but there was this interesting figure who was invited to Bursa by the Turkish Department of Urban Planning in the aftermath of a major fire that demolished much of the commercial quarters within the city. And the fire took place in 1958. So Luigi Piccinato came and he decided to offer an 
urban planning for the city, but his first aim was to revive and rebuild whatever was destroyed by the fire. So in a way, he focused his interest in the heart of the city where there was the Grand Bazaar, and he managed to construct a vaulted system that runs through the Grand Bazaar, creating almost like a backbone. And from this backbone, he managed to link the other commercial quarters. There were seven other small hams built next to the Grand Bazaar. So he sort of created a maze of commercial quarters. But what uh, Luigi Piccinato was important in this period, when he was in Bursa, he decided, with the help of the local people as well as urban planners, he decided to offer a new urban plan for the city itself. And he identified different zones within the city, like recreational areas, areas for housing, areas for industrial activities, and things like that. One thing that Piccinato was very good at, he was one of the one of the perhaps the only people in the history of the city in the 20th century who questioned the pre-Ottoman fabric of the city, like what kind of pre-Ottoman areas or building types would have been in the city where they would have been located, how we can identify that. So he was interested in the historic city and he was also trying to scheme a new city that would frame that old city. So he was very good in terms of that intention. But one thing that he failed was his uh, population estimates. For example, in 1957, the population of Bursa was 140,000. And he thought that, you know, using his zoning ideas, he thought that by the 1980s, the city would be around 250,000. But actually, by 1975, Bursa was already 350,000 people. So the city itself attracted many families coming in from different parts of Turkey in order to work in the industrial zone. And I think the city itself, the way that the axis running from the east to the west of the city, the urban axis that we had in the classical and Byzantine period, as well as in the Ottoman period, was not enough to accommodate the new population coming in. Although Luigi Piccinato's plan was never realized because of the political changes and uh, also changes in the regime and so on, still the plans that came after him was not successful at all in terms of accommodating the new populations and also the new areas that are being developed in the city. But uh, again, just going back to Piccinato again, in his like interpretation of the city, he says the green bursa is, is on its way. So again, appreciating the once really green city and he wants to bring that green quality back to the city with the green zones that he creates going in and around the city. But his plan was never realized and the plans that he came after was not really concerned about keeping the city green. And that's where we end up in the early 21st century, the city that's really far from being a green city. Those Piccinato plans are very interesting because there's it's, it's a quite a common story in that whole era and even earlier, you know, the early early Republican era for urban modernization plans drawn up by often European urban planners coming in yeah. and they're kind of very nice on paper, very idealized and you imagine, you know, it's almost a utopian vision mm-hmm. and uh, none of them really came to fruition and a common theme running through a lot of them seems to be that they failed to really anticipate and not just them but the administrators as well failed to anticipate the um, huge urbanization and uh, rapid 
population growth that uh, would be experienced in the in the various cities in the same decades of the mid 20th century and um seems like the same same thing happened in Bursa as well Definitely. I think it, this is one of the problems when we are offering urban plans or master plans for the cities. It has to be an interdisciplinary team. You cannot just work with the architects and urban planners to come up with a master plan for a city. You have to have the sociologists, you know, economists, all sorts of different branches of different disciplines, representatives, uh, so that, you know, they would come in and bring in a, a picture of their own estimates about the growth of the city, number of people coming in and out, their needs, the industrial areas, the city's incomes and resources. There are all sorts of different dynamics. And usually in the 19 40s or 50s those teams were mainly established by architects and urban urban planners they didn't have anyone else in those committees and they were also very politically charged because this time in in the turkish history is the time when uh, adnan menderes was in power and he has a way of creating his own vision for the cities in turkey istanbul gets its share bursa and izmir these are all the cities that are affected by those attempts of creating a new vision for the Turkish cities, you know, making them looking modern, preserved, but also looking forward. But again, as, as you said as well, they are all idealized and most of them have not been realized in their entirety. And when they are realized and done, the results are not very good for the future of, of those cities. And bringing us up to the present day, Bursa obviously has quite a lot of symbolic weight, obviously, as the first Ottoman capital. And it always strikes me that Bursa is characterized today as a sort of proudly, rather uncomplicatedly Muslim Turkish centre, rather mm -hmm. conservative with no real identity crisis to speak of. Is that an accurate description of the image of Bursa today in, in the popular imagination? And if so, I mean, just wonder if you could reflect that represents a real striking contrast with the, the cases of uh, synthesis and mixture of cultures that you highlight in the book. To me, of course, you know, I have, although I'm not from Bursa, I spent quite a bit of time there while I was doing my research. Just like any other city in Turkey, Bursa is also a very polarized city, I would say. There are really very sharp distinctions between two different segments within the society, conservative versus not conservative. And what I find interesting in that combination is the fact that both groups claim the same areas within the city. For example, you would go to the Kozahan. That's like a major hub to get socialized, to have your tea or coffee in the courtyard of a major Han uh, commercial building that was built in the early 15th century. And when you go there, you see people from all different walks of life in Bursa. Yes, in the first glance, when you look at Bursa, you might observe that city being a very conservative city. But I think there are distinctions within the city, different groups, but they claim uh, similar places. For example, just like Kozahan, there is one more quarter that was built in the early 15th century, the area of the Yeshil complex, uh, where there was this really beautiful tomb of Mehmet I with decorated with the tiles, there is, again, a nice coffee shop there. And when you go there, uh, you see that the people who are frequenting there are, again, very uh, mixed. To me, as a person who has been working on Bursa for quite a while, of course, you know, I have uh, another filter. Like when I look at the city, it's, uh, you know, early Ottoman buildings, uh, fabric, as well as topography. 
I just managed to peel off that later reimaginings or restorations that took place in the 19th century. I am able to do that distinction and see what's behind that pastiche or patina. Uh, but I don't think everyone in the city would be able to do that. Most of the people who live in the city, uh, for them, Bursa in their own eyes is the thing that they see. And much of that picture is the 19th century restorations and reconstructions. So it's a very reimagined or reconstructed vision of the early 14th century. And one other thing that I want to share is the case of the mausolea that the Ottomans converted in the old city. Uh, most of the accounts that are talking about this conversion, especially travelers' accounts, they mentioned that the tombs of Osman and Orhan was located in a monastery called the Monastery of St. John the Baptist or St. John uh, the Prodromos. For example, when you go and visit Bursa, when you look at uh, the sign tables, information panels that are talking about those tombs, they all refer to the idea that this building was part of a complex that's known as St. Elias. I find this quite curious. And I think the reason that the people from Bursa, both municipality and the locals, are insisting on this name is because St. Elias is an Old Testament saint. This is something that would be invoked both by the Christians and Muslims in the city. So in a way, the Turks can relate more to an Old Testament figure. And it is okay for them to see the two earliest founders of the Ottoman state being buried in a complex that was dedicated to St. Elias. In their memory, the name St. John the Baptist or Prodromos, it just does not come to their mind when they want to remember. And I think part of the reason is just because the name itself, St. John the Baptist, is purely identified with the Christian or Greek or Orthodox identity. And I think the Bursa, the people from Bursa, should come to an understanding that there might be other options available on the table. And uh, again, calling it a Byzantine monastic complex or remembering it as a complex that's originally dedicated to St. John the Baptist, but it was turned into mausolea for the founders of the Ottoman state would be another way of looking at the whole story. But regardless of all that, I think to me, uh, when I go to the city, when I look at like different segments within the city, especially the early Ottoman fabric, I find the city to be very inspiring and mystical. Of course, you know, I cannot be neutral towards Bursa. It's a city that I like, that I work on. And still, I think despite everything that has been done in the city by human interventions, especially really bad restorations on the city walls and 19th century restorations that took place after the 1855 earthquake, as well as other natural agents like earthquakes, fires, and so on. I think the city has still its own, it just reflects the 14th century spirit to me. I just, you know, suggest everyone to look at the city itself this way. You know, there is this layer that was added to the fabric of the city in the 19th century, as well as the 20th century and 21st century restorations. But behind that reimagining re or reconstruction, there is another layer. And that layer is very much based on the idea of an overlap between two cultures. And I think that's what I find about the city itself to be really interesting and inspiring for me.
That was Suna Chaptai. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 145. Remember, you can get her book for a 30% discount if you join as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Because, of course, membership gets you that discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that just pledge three dollars three euros or two pounds fifty or above per episode via turkey book talks patreon account also do rate or review turkey book talk on whatever podcast platform you use follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via twitter or via our facebook page or all of them and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any recommendations feedback or abuse to william john armstrong at gmail.com and finally don't forget to check out friends of turkey book talk turkey recap Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that's put together by the journalists Razier Akkoc and Diego Cupolo. It's a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 